all the rivers, yes, it's have been all rearranged and but you know the the rivers in our language, uh Stulak is meaning river, but it also is another uh, meaning in our language of like your veins that you have. Uh, all of us have veins. And uh, so the river, the living force of the water of the that's moving, as long it is moving, it will always bring you life force. And so this was the belief of the our people long ago that they called the Sulak or Skaha Sulak. It's the sacred veins, the sacred waters. So the rivers and we traveled on those rivers all over. That was our highway, you know. Now I think about it today. Now our the rock, the sacred rock, the cement, the rock powers, the mountain powers. Now we travel on those are rivers now to us today in the modern world. Welcome back to Invisible Histories, where we're unearthing the past one story at a time in the Pacific Northwest. Ready to rock and roll? Here Ready we are. Ready to go. Just so you know how dedicated we are, history never stops. Oh my God. <laughs> Two days before Christmas. <laughs> but this is when we have the time. We kept hearing rumors that this was once a so-called, quote unquote, Indian burial ground. And we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that and find out, was there really an indigenous connection to this area? So thanks to some generous support from Four Culture, we were able to interview these incredible local indigenous storytellers. Well, Johnny Moses, he is both local and based out of California. And Pamela Seamonster, who apprenticed with him, and she's also part of our annual Haunted History Tour each year, telling spooky stories and first, a quick note that this is based on our research, and it's really just the tip of the iceberg in creating an Indigenous-centered perspective on these themes for audiences that may have no prior knowledge of these areas. So it's not an exhaustive overview, and we are the ones helping bring it to the audiences. So Johnny Moses, in case you haven't heard of him, he's a traveling ambassador for Northwest Coast Cultures, as his website states, and he's fluent in eight native languages. He's also an oral historian and a spiritual leader. And if you've never heard him, you really need to take a little time to listen to him and his work. So we set up this Zoom interview with him and it was late and I was tired and and those of you who listen know I have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old at home, so my days are busy, to say the least. But when I got on the Zoom with him, he has this incredibly soothing voice and calming presence that speaks to this idea of really slowing down and listening to each other. And, and I love that. It's this balm of connection in these overwhelming times. So this piece in the beginning is from him. And I also want to share a piece from Pamela, who has 
the most captivating way of sharing stories also. She's visually impaired, but her medium is her voice, and she weaves her stories like so many threads to create these beautiful garments. Okay, so getting back to our mystery, was this area a so-called Indian burial ground? No. <laughs> and the short answer, right, Carrie, is, yes. is no, we found no. out. And there's a big reason why, because the Coast Salish people were not buried in the earth traditionally. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense from like a land perspective, too. I mean, you know, uh, these spaces were the marshy areas. They were covered in water. What I'd like to say is that our people were not buried. We weren't covered, our mouths and our faces they weren't covered up by the earth. We didn't dig holes and put people down to the water table line. You see, we, we hung them in the trees, in spirit canoes. We would, our people would culturally modify a tree. So if you had a tree that it had these branches and maybe they had a couple that were kind of going this way and like that, we would take this, when it was a sapling, there was people who, who were designated caretakers, and they would cut that branch, and then they would guide the way a tree was growing. And so this tree would then become, when it grew, it would become where the spirit canoe was. The other thing that our people did by culturally modifying trees was to make a sign, right? We never went and nailed a sign onto a tree and said, go that way, right? But we would culturally modify the tree so that the tree kind of angled. Have you ever seen a tree where it had a big arm going out this way and everything else was going up, but this one was really big going that way? That was probably a culturally modified tree. It was probably a CMT because like, like it could hold somebody there, right? And, but it's really pointing the way to something, a path. So there's lots of different ways that our people were able to communicate in the forest. A long time ago, our people hung in spirit canoes. We were, a special canoe was created for the dead and it hung in a tree. We, that we would put our people inside of a, a bag that was woven out of cattail reeds or woven out of cedar bark. It would be woven out of cedar bark and we put the things in there with them that they needed to travel, probably their medicine and other things. And then we would hang them in the trees. And so they're up in a tree and their body is swelling and the carrion birds would come and pop those bodies and consume the meat until there was dry bones. And the north wind will come and it would blow the people out of the tree and the bones would fall to the ground and the bears and the wolves and the coyotes and the mountain lions and all the other little carnivorous creatures would come and take the bones away. And then that spirit canoe would be brought down and clean and everything would be freshened up. That, that canoe would have a ceremony because our people considered it to be a living spirit being. 
So what they did is they took care of these CMTs or culturally modified trees that were created for the purpose of holding the dead. And we're back on trees again. (laughs) I told you somehow it all comes back to trees, right? If you caught our last episode, we started talking about that there too. So if you've ever seen cedar or any of these other large local trees with branches that form these curves or more slightly exaggerated shapes, it's possible that they could be CMTs used for these afterlife rituals. Now, that wasn't the only reason they modified trees. They also did bark stripping and created marker trees to as like signs instead of nailing a sign into a tree, as Pamela said. These would point the way for people. And it's all an important part of this holistic harmony with the environment, sustainability, and teaching the generations, passing knowledge on. So after someone passed away, They were put up in a special spirit canoe created especially for that purpose in the tree for their journey to the afterlife. And they were left up there for one year because that's how long the journey to the East took in their belief system. And so the haunted history part, this is, I'm just going to warn you, (laughs) as Pamela tells it, she tells it way better, but the bodies, you know, bloated as bodies do after death and They had the goo running out and they were picked clean by the carrion birds and creatures and what remained were the bones. And all the blood and bodily fluids would flow down, down the tree into the soil and the fungus would grow. And in that way, there would be this kind of unity with the trees. And as they talk about it, it's like this immortality through nature, which is so beautiful. And Johnny Moses does mention, and Ken Workman as well, right? I think Mm -hmm. you talk talk about that later. That's right that um, South Seattle area is definitely a meaningful area for indigenous people and connected to spiritual experience. Yeah, so it is possible that at some point in the early or mid 1700s or 1800s, that there were enough trees on this windy point of land to sustain trees large enough for a burial canoe. But by the 1850s, from photos, it was mostly river bottom, cottonwood or alder, shrubs, and the big trees were over on the forested green belts on the east or the west side of the river. And Ken Workman, the chairman of the Duwamish tribe, has told me that he believes his ancestors were buried in the trees in the west Duwamish green belt. And I should stop saying buried. I should say interred. How, what would they say? I know, right. They were, yeah, yeah. placed in the trees. Um, Yeah, in the west Duwamish green belt. So, Perhaps some early settlers saw something on this point of land that they thought looked like, quote unquote, an Indian burial. And perhaps an unknown early visitor to the area did use the high ground there for a like what we would call a Western or Christian burial, um, which the settlers, future settlers mistook for this Indian burial. But we may never know. So. No, it is. It's an enduring mystery, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's really interesting to bring all these little complex pieces together to create mm-hmm. a better picture. And and as contact and colonization happened and took over, they did eventually move into burial in in many cases. So just to let you know, it was this was a more traditional system, and and nowadays most people are cremated or buried. Although I I couldn't say for sure, like there are maybe some people that Mm -hmm. are still in places able to do this. And of course, we're going to look into the next, the way of the future, right? Carrie, did you want to talk about what the way, do you know what I'm talking about with 
the, the, the recompose. recompose. Yeah. So maybe a, a potential future sponsor of this show. We've reached out to the recompose company, which is based in Georgetown, right on the Duwamish river. And they provide modern human composting at their facility. And you can go on a tour, which we're going to do in January and yes. see how it works. But you are interred there. A person would be interred there. I'm not sure how long the process takes, but then your friends and family would be given back a bag of mulch basically to use as you need. You to. become a bag of dirt, but that's, yeah. I think it's perfect because that's, you know, how you get back to nature faster. I mean, that's yeah. what we all become in the end. Dirt and stardust, right? Or exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Elka, how did one end up buried in the potter's field in Seattle? Well, that's a really great question and one that we started to investigate and two key locations emerged as we delved further into our research on this, the King County Poor Farm and the King County Hospital and Tuberculosis Sanatorium. Not very pleasant places to be, as you'll see as we keep going on. But I do want to remind you that you can always visit our Instagram to see all the riveting visual imagery associated with this episode. And um, be sure to visit our podcast landing page for show notes and all the other exciting details associated with the uh, history we're digging up. And you can go to www.fogi.org slash potters field for that. So F-O-G-H-I dot O-R-G slash P-O-T-T-E-R-S-F-I-E-L-D. And, you know, we have some wonderful imagery that you can take a look at um, showing what the King County Poor Farm would have looked like in the early 1900s. And I think especially if you're familiar with the area of Georgetown today, it's super engaging because I mean, it looks like a farm, you know, and it's so industrial in many parts of that area today that it's kind of hard to imagine that it was like that not very long ago. I mean, there's cows in that picture, one of the ones <laughs> that you'll see, and there are definitely less cows in Georgetown today. Yeah. Had to make that joke. <laughs> so we did, they had an 1854 law saying that counties had to take care of their poor, and King County essentially assumed ownership in 1869, of 160 acres of farmland in this area we're talking about from John Thompson, who had died without heirs, so the land was available. Then in 1877, the Sisters of Providence, the first Sisters of Charity of Providence, as they were known, arrived in Seattle, or arrived in Seattle May 3rd, 1877, on the sidewheeler, the Alita, to care for the indigent sick at the request of the local Catholic priest. Now, sidewheeler. Is that like a riverboat? It's a riverboat, <laughs> river yeah. I saw a picture of it. It looked, yeah, like a, what you'd think of as a little, um, and it transported the nuns from Oregon Territory up here, and it took wow. a day. And the oh Catholic gosh. priest had basically asked the county, please send someone, because there's so many people here now who are sick and dying that there's just not enough there's not enough people to basically care for them. And I don't think there was any hospital at that point established in oh Seattle. Oh my gosh. So, so if you were in trouble, if you got sick back then, definitely nothing, yeah. no one to take care of you. So these Catholic nuns established the first hospital in Georgetown. And it was inside a rough wooden farmhouse, which the nuns found <laughs> inadequate to say the least. I quote, clothed in long black habits, 
the French-speaking nuns encountered hostility and ridicule in the predominantly Protestant and unchurched community. (laughs) They were heathens. Here I tell you, Sister Chronicler wrote, at our arrival, the people were so prejudiced that they prevented the sick from coming to us. I'd rather die than be treated by these these French-speaking nuns. Oh my gosh, it's hard to imagine. (laughs) After the Sisters of Providence moved to 5th and Madison in 1878, King County continues to operate the hospital and poor farm on 80 acres in what we know as Georgetown today. We'll be sure to share, we'll be sure, let me try that again. (laughs) We'll be sure to share (laughs) the link with you from History Link so you can check out more about that. So... And actually, the Providence Hospital archives have a lot of information about the the nuns that came here. And apparently the head nun... And pictures, too. Forgot her name now, but she literally wielded a hammer to help, like, build the hospital that was at Fifth and Madison. (laughs) That was going to take a darker turn. Okay, we can delete that part, but... Yeah, she oversaw the construction of that hospital. She was, in she was getting in there herself mm-hmm. to do literally do the building. So yes. these were these were tough nuns, definitely. Wow. And we really wondered though, we posited this question, what was it like to actually live and die there, like be on this poor farm? And in an article in the Seattle Daily Times from 1907, so we're moving a little further along, by Walter Defenbaugh, although I'm gonna say solidly situated in the biases of the time. It provides us an illuminating glimpse. Some there were old, some blind, most feeble. Some were young men temporarily disabled. They had, in Walter's words, saloons and mocking real estate signs on one, on one side and the wet winding river and dreary pines on the other side. About 30 people on the 90-acre farm. They would have to work, weed, prepare vegetables, 140 in the hospital, give or take. And those who could work would work there too, in the kitchen, scrubbing the floors, sweeping, watering the lawn, almost all men. In a striking quote, highlighting women of a certain age's long struggle for agency and visibility, Mr. Defenbaugh says, there is no good place in this country to send an unfortunate old lady whose only affliction is her years and her inability to earn a living. Grim. I know, it's sad. No middle-aged OnlyFans back then. (laughs) Spinsters. The spinsters were not getting any love. No. Yeah. Elder care support, right? Yes. (laughs) Definitely. The progressive social and human services had not happened yet at this point. Yes, yes. You were at the mercy of the Catholic Church or... Neighbor, left in your family, right? Yeah, exactly, there was yeah. no one. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at our website, you will be sure to share some of these newly discovered Ashal Curtis images. And you know, you're a history nerd when you text each other late at night with news. <laughs> I had just seen that the Washington State Historical Society had received, I believe it's 60,000 images from Ashal Curtis's mm-hmm. collection, wow. of which I think only a tiny percent have been digitized. Oh my so gosh. they have launched a campaign to pay to have someone digitize and record all of his pictures incredible so including this one of the sanatorium in 1909 on the banks of the river the tuberculosis sanatorium Um, so by 1900 seattle had one of the highest incidences of tuberculosis per capita in the united states and patients with communicable diseases including influenza were sent here The Georgetown Sanatorium housed patients on land surrounding the King County Hospital from 1903 to 1911, where the Georgetown South Seattle 
college campuses today. <laughs> Just think about that one for a moment. Yeah. Next time you're in class. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I did say on land surrounding, not in the actual hospital, because due to medical understanding and practices of the time, the patients were housed in open air tents on platforms that backed up over the river and on top of the drain pipes. And the picture is oh. just so heartbreaking to look yes. at how people were living. Oh my God. They weren't allowed to have heat because it, they said the hot air was actually bad for the lungs oh, recovering geez. from tuberculosis. So just imagine the coughing, the fog, the foul kind of river that was really at that point used as a sewer. Oh my God. And these poor people were out there. You know, my, and my son is in, my oldest is interested in, he got a book on like plagues and like medical treatment. I know light reading around Christmas and the next uh, generation. Yes. And he just found out about tuberculosis and he was saying one of the treatments they had was like collapsing your lung, your, you know, one of your lungs or something. And I'm just, you just think about, you know, stuff like that. And it just, it seems so awful. Yeah. Right. So from the Seattle daily times quote, the poor fellows who lie all day and all night in the big tents out along the riverbank with curtains pulled up high on every clear day and not a passing human being to break the monotony, nothing but the petty little lapping of the foolish river to make one moment different from the next and no one to care whether the moment three heartbeats away will be their last. <sighs> there were 16 men there at the time of the article, not just American, but Scandinavian, Filipino, Japanese, and British, some couldn't even speak English, and most people died coughing in the cold, foggy, foul conditions by the river. And then, unless a family member came to claim the body, they were buried in the potter's field just along the shoreline to the right of the photo at the potter's field. Um, the Seattle Star, which was the progressive newspaper of the time, did an investigative report which led to a grand jury investigation that, not surprisingly, found the conditions inhumane and the management horrific. Oh, my God. When we dove into the King County archives, um, we were able to look at reports and investigations by the state auditors into just how terrible the King County Hospital was, including testimony from former workers and patients. And it's just really heartbreaking and eye-opening, including a story of a man being carried by the nurses. And when a worker discovered the man's hand was warm, the nurse snapped back, that he's surely dead now, come on, oh and only being given bread and water, and um, that the, the hospital kitchen was far away from where these men were being cared for, quote-unquote, and so their food would arrive cold. Yeah, we did an entire Haunted History Tour skit about this to kind of make light of it, but, you know, it was the mean nurse and the poor patients laying there in the cold um, trying to make share the information about the, the time that Kent, that Georgetown housed this tuberculosis sanatorium. Well, and that's, you know, if you've been to this area at all, or you live here and you know what it's like, say come October, November, Ugh. I mean, it is so grim outside like forties and rainy yeah. and, you know, and foggy. And so it just, it's not a place you want to be out in a tent, even no. though we do people that go camping that time of year yes. with but all they, the modern amenities. Exactly. <laughs> so the silver lining in all this was that it eventually led to reforms like the anti-tuberculosis league, which formed in the very year of 1909, which led to King County public health, creating a new tuberculosis sanatorium up at Furcrest, which is in North Seattle in the city of Shoreline. Um, which hopefully had walls at least I, big improvement. I'm pretty sure, or at least a covered, I saw yes. pictures of people with tuberculosis lined up 
like it looked like a covered porch. Yeah. Like, you know, still had a cover on it oh. and maybe had open screens. They really believed that people needed fresh air to recover oh my from TV. Yeah. Anyway, thank goodness we're in the modern age now. Yes. So in the 1912 burial registry that we were able to take a look at in the King County archives, big thank you and shout out to them. Remember that there were 855 that had names and dates on the headboards, 493 that had only numbers on headboards, and 1,912 had no mark with numbers or names and no headboards, the people that are essentially lost to history, right? So we did want to find out as much as we could about those 855 with names. So we signed up these two amazing volunteers, (laughs) Rose and Patty, who began helping us. And they've just been incredible. And I used to work with Patty at the Seattle Underground Tour and Rose is her sister. And they've both been quietly working really hard in the background, filling up our Dropbox with an avalanche of information that we've started sifting through. And so those buried in the Potter's Field, they really ran the gamut from infants, very sad, to Civil War veterans even, to one of the first Sikhs in Seattle, which we'll talk more about later, to condemned outlaws not fit for hollowed ground, which we'll also talk about. And we're especially interested in finding stories that are usually pushed to the margins. The immigrant experience, what life was like for diverse groups back then. And one of the questions we started asking ourselves as we looked through these entries and found out more about, you know, it's a lot of times it's newspaper articles because that's really what we're having to go through. Of course, we can take that as a starting point then and look for birth or death certificates or other things like that. So the question we ask is, where are the women? And this turned out to be quite a challenge for a number of reasons. First, we found out the community would often help to raise money to bury women and children somewhere else anywhere else. There was a stigma with being buried in the potter's field. And remember, this was a time when women were still referred to by their husbands' names, too. So there's a lot less potential for finding records about them and for investigating more about who they were. Nevertheless, though, we were able to find key news stories on several women with, let's just say, less than stellar fates here. And we're going to share some today. And then We have a very exciting episode coming up, our theatrical presentation episode, which will be like an old style radio play where we'll actually have people, including us probably, portraying some of these characters to invite you in to what the experiences would have been like for their lives and their stories. So super excited for that. Be on the lookout. But let me tell you some brief stories here of a few of the women that we found out about. And then Carrie's going to talk about some as well. So settle in with your tea or coffee Mm. and a comfy chair to hear about uh, murder and uh, loss. So (laughs) Mary Lake was embroiled in what I like to call the Melrose Place thriller of the early 1900s. (laughs) So she was found with a Mr. Thomas at a place called the Fredonia House which we've been trying to find out more information about, um, by her husband. So Mr. Thomas was not her husband. He shot them both and then turned the gun on himself. So it was thought that she might survive because she had a spinal injury, which was pretty serious, but they thought maybe not um, deadly. But she actually did die of her injuries several days later. 
And a telling piece from the article that we found is that the murderer's mom sent, she sent a telegram all the way from Nova Scotia saying she was unable to bear the funeral expenses. So she was staying out of all this. And I think I like to think about the fact that this love triangle essentially was linked for eternity by all three being buried together in the potter's field. Mm-hmm. However, it wasn't eternity quite because they were eventually <laughs> dug up and cremated and possibly separated then. So, And then we have Leah Lind. So continuing with this idea of visibility of female lives in the potter's field, I do want to mention that we, we really only have what is listed in the newspaper to go on. And it is important to understand that this is framed from a specific viewpoint. They are trying to sell papers. They are coming at it from their viewpoint of the time. So it may not accurately reflect the women or their actual lived experiences, but it at least gives us some information to go on and start picturing what their lives were like. In the long told tale of the jilted lover, Mrs. Leah Lind, her story brings a new twist. Her husband, he was a fisherman. He came back from sea upon hearing she had unexpectedly passed. He sees the body, he's grieving. And I like how they add in the article, he appeared heartbroken, so he must have met with foul play. That's the only reason he could have never come back, right? I mean, I'm sorry, this dude skipped town, so he didn't have to pay for his dead wife's burial. And because of that, she ended up at a pauper's grave. Not cool, man. I like how they still find it germane to mention in the article that she was a pretty woman of 28 years, was being the operative word there. On the other side of things, Mary Dugan is wisely unmarried. No, just kidding. I don't. I mean, I don't know. She is an example of it. We're not sure. Actually, there's a lot of mystery surrounding her story. Her story is shrouded in mystery. She did come up from Portland with several friends, and she was using the name Mrs. Mary Dugan, but it was questionable whether she was actually married or not. And she found work as a domestic and went into convulsions one day and was taken to the Wayside Mission Hospital and subsequently died. Now, there was talk of a criminal investigation because of the suddenness and the specifics of her death, but I'm not sure if that ever actually came to pass. Interestingly, they mentioned in the article that she was found to be in a delicate condition, which Mm. could indicate an even more tragic tale. Now, her friends had hightailed it back to Portland, you know, and so no known relatives coming forward. She was destined for the potter's field, but we haven't found the name that she was using on our findagrave.com listing of the transcribed names from the burial registry. So we don't know if she ever actually ended up there. It seems she is still destined for mystery. And now I'm going to share one more, and then you'll get to hear lovely Carrie's voice again. (laughs) It's interesting. It's an example of how we're trying to find more out about people from diverse groups who were pushed to the margins. I'm not actually sharing the newspaper article that we got some of our information from because it's incredibly racist. And James Carter, an African-American man, and he was definitely buried in the potter's field. There is a March 17th, 1902 newspaper article saying that. And it is very biased and racist, so I'm not going to quote it, but it does give us possible clues about his life. He was a runaway slave who came from the South to Seattle. He did struggle with alcoholism, and he was on the poor farm for at least part of his life, and he had definitely been arrested. We really want to find out more insight into life from his perspective, so we did reach out to Ethel Marie in the Black Heritage Society, and we were able to talk to her for a bit, although we didn't end up with any specific leads from that. The census document is from 
we actually found a census document from the 12th one in 1900. And there is a James Carter listed on there as the head of household who is from Virginia, but I haven't been able to verify if it is the same person. And there's also a prison record from around the same time, also for a James Carter, but it being a very common name, once again, we're not totally sure if that's the same person or not. Ethel Marie did let us know that there is a well-known local black family by the name of Carter from Virginia. And we're looking at following up on a lead. There's a scholar that she recommended uh, who is doing more work specifically on that family and their roots. And we also look forward to visiting the Black Heritage Society archives to see if we can make some additional connections for that. And also our project on the Duwamish um, Bend housing project, which we have other people and friends of Georgetown history like Liddell looking into. So that one's very exciting. And now I've been talking for quite a while. I'm sure you're getting tired of hearing my voice and like, (laughs) is Carrie still there? So how about Carrie shares a little bit more about some of these specific stories of people buried in the potter's field. One of the great mysteries of those buried in the potter's field is Ingo Singh. Ingo is listed as 40 years old on his death notice um, from the paper. Yeah, I actually did find evidence of another person of Sikh. They called him a Sikh. From earlier, actually. He was a street peddler and murdered by a group of Afghans who were here. And it was just this battle. Like the Afghans had helped pay for him to come. Oh, one of those sort of like. And then wanted his money probably. And they ended up murdering. Oh my God. Like on the railroad tracks over in like on the east side somewhere. And they just let him fall down into the lake. Anyway. Yeah. And on that note. On that note. um, (laughs) So maybe Ingo's his. He was here maybe. Who knows? Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah, we're not sure if he's the first. Yeah. So one of the great mysteries of those buried in the potter's field is Ingo Singh, listed in the exhumation burial record. Ingo is listed as 40 years old on his death notice. So that, and being born in, meaning he would have been born in 1869. And just for historical context, like who else was born in 1869? In India, Mahatma Gandhi. So interesting. (laughs) Mahatma lived a lot longer than Ingo. But um, anyway, just to show that that global connection to to India and the British Empire. Um, So Ingo was of the Sikh religion. And so we can only guess why and how he ended up in this area. But um, there is some a lot of records of Sikhs visiting the Pacific Northwest in that era, starting in 1897. And as soldiers from the British Empire, they had traveled through Canada on their way back home after Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. And so I think many Sikh men especially saw the potential of living and working here um, and becoming laborers in some of the industries, including the logging industry. Um, So from a Peter Manso article on Slate.com, A Forgotten History of Anti-Sikh Violence in the Early 20th Century Pacific Northwest, the press often called them Hindus, but they were often Sikhs from the northern Indian region of Punjab. And they soon, the Sikhs soon became valuable employees in the logging industry, especially in and around Bellingham, because, quote unquote, we cannot get white men who will remain steadily at their work. One lumber mill owner told the Bellingham Herald, a large number are transient and work only for whiskey money, leaving the company in the lurch just at the time that their services are most desired. (laughs) And so the Sikh religion prohibited consuming alcohol. 
And, and so they were desired, I think, on some of these working crews. Um, uh, in one particular from September 16th, 1906, is titled, Have We a Dusky Peril? Hindu hordes invade the state with echoes of today's racist beliefs and discussions about immigrants from Mexico and Central America and building a border wall. Yeah, yeah. So this is just a reminder that there is always fear. There has been in this country fear of difference, fear of jobs being taken away, mistreatment, hate, and violence often follow, as we can see from these the documented 1907, quote unquote, anti-Hindu riots that happened in Bellingham, Washington. And so we don't know if Ingo had been in Bellingham or perhaps was on his way there when he became sick or injured, but he did uh, pass away in 1907 aboard the Wayside Mission Hospital. Patty Rose, I'm sorry, I don't remember which one, <laughs> found his death certificate and we noticed that he had died at the Wayside Mission Hospital, which led us down this whole rabbit hole. I remember Carrie like letting me know, like, oh, Wayside Mission Hospital, what was that? And we started digging in and finding out pictures and more about it. And it yeah. kind of opened up all these interesting doors. Right? Yeah. And Mary Dugan, which you just mentioned, also went there and yeah. died. So it yeah. was basically uh, April 1st, 1899, a group of philanthropic citizens, including Dr. Alexander DeSoto, formed the Seattle Benevolent Society, which purchased the decommissioned sidewheel steamboat Idaho. So like the one that the, again. <laughs> that the nuns came on back in 1877. And so it was retrofitted as an emergency hospital for Seattle's indigent population. So if you weren't being treated by the Catholic nuns at Providence Hospital, then you might have ended up at the Idaho or the mm -hmm. Wayside Mission Hospital. So the Idaho itself, the entire boat was placed up on pilings and alongside the Pacific Coast Steamship Company's Pier C at the foot of South Jackson Street and was reopened as the Wayside Mission Hospital. In 1907, due to structural failures, the Idaho was abandoned and the hospital activities moved ashore near Second and Republican, which today is under the Seattle Center Fountain, that right next to the Space Needle. I've been by that a lot of times. Yeah. And to think about that. I mean, we love to talk about this idea of history right beneath your feet and not even knowing about it. And my like kids play in that fountain mm -hmm. now. There are all these... Yeah. So there was a, <laughs> There's a benevolent hospital, hospital yeah. there. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that Ingo Sang never actually made it past the waterfront, but we can imagine a little bit more about his final days with this information. And today, if you're curious, now dear, near the foot of South Washington Street along the waterfront is a historical marker that was placed in 1960 on National Maritime Day at the location of the Idaho's final resting place. The marker reads, beneath your feet lies the wreckage of the pioneer sidewheel steamer Idaho, which served from 1900 until 1909 as Dr. Alexander DeSoto's famous Wayside Mission Hospital. Here, Dr. DeSoto's ministered to the needs of the seafarers and the destitute, donating his time and funds to their care. So another character, perhaps worthy of a Pacific Northwest oh, noir film, is yes. Thomas Hamilton Blank. Mm -hmm. Thomas Hamilton Blank was born in New York, known as the Jesse James of the Pacific Northwest for killing at least five people between California and British Columbia, Canada. And he died in a gunfight with the sheriff's posse right before his 25th birthday. So in October of 1894, he had been convicted in a King County Superior Court of the murder of bartender Charles Bridwell and sentenced to hang on December 7th. But the case was appealed and his execution was stayed. 
He spent his nights in jail secretly crafting a replica Smith & Wesson double-action revolver, which was his favorite weapon. I love how specific that is, mm-hmm. too. Like, he's, he's not just making any old, like, <laughs> gun here. He's making his yeah, favorite weapon. Yeah, exactly. You have to know a weapon really well to do that, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did find an article from later in that year, December 31st, 1896, so much past his demise blank's wooden gun it has been learned that he made it himself woman gave him a knife and basically while he was in jail someone a woman came and gave him something oh my maybe God. with a pen knife secretly hidden away inside it and he used that to make the gun which um it was all wood and um he was popular with the ladies i think he too. used they had a sh- they must have had a shelf a wooden shelf in the jail cell oh and he gosh. had carved the gun out of a piece of the wood for oh the sh- <laughs> no more wood uh, in the jail cells yeah no <laughs> um so we want to tell more of his story during this kind of theatrical yes. piece but just the, kind of the, the upshot of his we'll tell the kind of whole sorted story of his crafting his gun and his escape and his pursuit through King County. But the basically, when it came down to it, the county did not want him buried in a nice cemetery. And so basically, in the middle of the night, I think he was brought to the Potter's Field and buried there just with a number because they really did not want anyone to know where he had gone and to kind of glorify his death by, I guess, visiting his grave, yeah. considering how much he really had a quite a following of people that I think were sort of still believing in this wild west and kind of the glory of the gunfighter and the bank robber and the guy that would hold up these you know carriages and rob people so i think they were just trying to put him away so no one could actually celebrate him so he was buried in the potter's field in march of 1895 a.e levan ended up being buried somewhere else but Unfortunately for him, he was found by some children in Georgetown in June of 1903 oh, without gosh, a head. Children too. Oh, gosh. Yes, of course. Oh, some children were playing along the river with no supervision, and they found a headless corpse. Stand by me. No, they didn't find a headless corpse enough, but didn't they find a dead body? Yeah, but they were. They didn't know who the body was, and so they quickly buried it. Buried the body at the Potter's Field, but then. Um, the body was decomposed and without identification. And so the authorities quickly buried him. And then a fortnight went by and a Seattle merchant named Kessler, who had become suspicious of who the corpse could have been. And his friend didn't show up. I guess Ah, Kessler said in a later newspaper article that Levan would just come by and hang out with him at his store, which I think was what you did. You just went and Hung out, hang out with your yeah. friends who had a place. So, yeah, you know, people weren't playing on their phones. Exactly. <laughs> so Kessler said, oh, it's been a fortnight and A. Levan hasn't shown up and wondered maybe if this headless corpse could have been oh, his friend. Man. And so he asked rough. to be present when the body was exhumed. So he must have had to go down to the potter's field and stand oh, there, yeah. right? Oh, my gosh. And confirm the identity. And he looked at the clothing on the body and noted that it was a suit that he had sold to Levan, who lived in Sunnyside. Um, they checked the pockets of his suit, found a key, and it fit in the lock of the Levan's house. Oh, my house. God. It's crazy to think, like, perfect, like, the suit, can it, good enough to identify a key still in there, but no oh, head. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So then now now they could identify him, and because he was from Russia and of, of Jewish faith, 
So I believe his friends and family actually paid to have him buried at the Vicar Shalom Cemetery mm-hmm. in North Seattle, where you can visit him today. We had to do a little investigative research, and I had to go walk through the oh, cemetery and find his 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 gravestone is actually very distinctive. So it oh, was wow. um, so people must have knowing him spent the money to actually have him buried there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and his friends and family were convinced that he was murdered by his racetrack gambling enemies or his neighbor who had, you know, attempted to shoot him and the bullet went through his hat and didn't (sighs) kill him. And so maybe somebody just finally, I don't know what he had done. It's crazy that that had happened at some point. (laughs) Maybe that was commonplace back then. I don't know. (laughs) Bullets whizzing by. Yeah. Um, So anyway, the coroner, Mr. Hoy, who's come up many times in our stories, was convinced that Levan was most foully murdered. Unsolved mystery. Yes. So one more going way back in time. This is January 18th, 1882. So imagine this is the early days of Seattle. Downtown Pioneer Square was just a few city blocks. And there had been um, a murder of a shopkeeper in, in Seattle. And the shopkeeper had been murdered and witnesses had seen. And then everybody went to go look for the men that had killed him. And they found the the men. They brought him to the jail. They were holding them there for the uh, court case, I think. But before the judge could even come and, like, actually do the trial, the vigilante mob basically broke into the jail. They busted the door down and grabbed these two men and hung them on over a wooden... um, I think it's called a scantling where they hang two pieces of wood across a tree. And then, so, so what we found on history link about this, which I just think is worthy of reading is Charles Kinnear was a child. So he was 14 years old and this is his account remembering as a 70 year old man later, what he had witnessed. So three men were left hanging on the cross beam until four o'clock that day. We boys climbed up on the fence and cut off pieces of rope hanging from the necks of both men, of the dead men. The bodies were cut down and carted off late in the afternoon and buried in the potter's field. Two men were put into one rough casket, the other man alone. Long ends of rope were left hanging from the coffins, and those ropes were held up while the earth was filled in so that they lay along the ground outside the graves." Maybe as a warning? I guess. guess. Oh, my gosh. So here's 14-year-old Charles Kinnear saying, The boys and girls of the town used to go to the potter's field and pull up these ropes to see what would happen. We boys went to school wearing pieces of rope tied to our suspenders and the girls with pieces of rope tied to their pigtails of braided hair. (laughs) What were they teaching children back then? Oh, my my gosh. This is 1882. (laughs) So these children were running wild not even in the streets, in the dirt, along the river, finding dead bodies, pulling on ropes in the graveyard. I just, it's fascinating. Oh my gosh, it is. It is just to think about that happening and like think about, um, you know, how, how much, what a close eye we keep on children today. And Mm -hmm. like, even from our childhoods in like the 1970s and running around in our eighties. Yeah. But just that death was so, I think, death at this time was so common yeah. and these horrible deaths were very common and public lynchings. I mean, everyone came to watch these three men get executed and it was gruesome. Apparently, you know, they tied the men up and then just basically raised and lowered them till their 
Ugh. Faces were gross. gross. Uh, you know, it was horrible. And, so, and like that's something that had been happening for a long time. That if you think about like Middle Ages or whatever, they were doing that type yeah. of stuff. And so it, it it wasn't like it was new. But oh my gosh, yeah. It's hard to think about. We've got a couple more stories to share with you guys. I mean, really, when we talk about an avalanche of information there, you know, we don't have 800, but we easily are getting up around 100 or something. It's like, a, I'll yeah. count. I don't know. We'll count. Yeah, yes. yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. So this one is very sad for all the moms out there, definitely. But it's a 1905 article from the Seattle Star that says, Tiny Coffin Reveals Potter's Field Mystery. By Nan Bixby, which is interesting because we were wondering if she's a female writer from the time. It sounds like a female name. So out in the potter's field near the county poor farm lie those of King County's paupers who will never more ask alms. The graves are arranged in long rows and at the head of each there is a white wooden slab bearing a black number. The pauper's dead are buried by contract and each grave is entitled to an individual number. So Gardner Lewis Jones who weeds King County's potato crop and incidentally looks after King County Cemetery, was startled Wednesday afternoon when he saw two freshly made graves side by side at the end of the last long row bearing the same number, number 108. Upon inquiry, he found that the contract undertaker had buried only one number 108, and as further inquiry of downtown undertakers failed to throw any light upon the mystery of the duplicate number, the gardener opened the last grave and found therein a tiny pine coffin enclosing the body of a dead baby girl dressed in simple white, the two little hands folded across the still breast and clasping a little bouquet of faded flowers. Who were the grieving parents that, having no other place to bury their dead, carried a little pine box out to the potter's field by night and there silently lay claim to their share of Mother Earth? Who was the heartbroken mother that, as for the last time she drew the fat little dimpled arms of her baby girl through the sleeves of a tiny white dress, must have felt the bitterest sting of poverty? Who was the father that fashioned the rough little coffin from pine boards, each blow of the hammer finding dull echo in his own grief-laden heart? Because of poverty, the dead baby girl was buried in the potter's field. Because of poverty, the clods of earth fell upon the coffin in the dead of night. And because of poverty, the identity of duplicate slab number 108 will probably remain shrouded in mystery. A very sad one, definitely. Mm -hmm. And when we did say it runs the gamut. And I think she makes interesting points, though, about how there were people that didn't have the means to bury their their child who had passed away, even their infant. And mm -hmm. so they felt like this was their only option. Now, we both talked about how this, we're not totally sure if this is a true story. We haven't been able to absolutely verify it because number 108 in the burial registry does not say unknown infant. However, it was a duplicate one. Right. So maybe, and that was years later, the burial yeah. registry that we have was 1912. So maybe they took it out. They don't really yeah. talk about what they did though. Did they, I assume they let the the body stay there. I mean, what mm -hmm. else would, would they be able to do? Yeah. So of course, the caretaker left the, ba the body yes. there. So. So and I sad. guess what we don't have are his note. Like, how was the coroner and or these the Potter's Field recording bodies as they were placed there? Because yeah. all we have are the, the exhumation final. record. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So some, I don't know, that's partly maybe part of this mystery is just the record keeping at that time. I mean, if we could find that type of stuff, we have been talking to the King County Medical Examiner, but they really don't have a lot of those really early ones before they officially took over. You know, this is a time period when they weren't. So they're relying upon like funeral homes or other places that might have had that information. So we need Coroner Hoy. I know we need we need, to, find, the, like, we need to interview him, the ghost of Corner Hoy, to tell us what happened. <gasps> That's a good idea for a skit, actually. It's actually yeah. a good idea. And and Carrie's got two more to yeah, share. Yeah, I have one from the Seattle Post Intelligencer from November nineteenth, nineteen o three. Coroner's jury returns verdict in Yin drowning. Corner Hoy yesterday afternoon held an inquest on the body of Chin John Yin, the Chinaman, as they were called then person from China, was knocked mm-hmm. from the bridge near South Seattle a week ago by an interurban car. Oh, the testimony of the employees in charge of the car was that after knocking the man off, a part of the crew were left behind to recover and care for him. The verdict of the jury was that Yin came to his death by being struck by a car belonging to the Puget Sound Railway Company and knocked into the water. Death resulted from drowning and the accident was unavoidable. Oh my God. I don't know. <laughs> And he was buried in the potter's field. Oh, so he must not have had relatives. And one of the other interesting things that we were talking to Wing Luke about is, is like um, Chinese traditional mm-hmm. burial practices and afterlife ceremony, because it was yeah. a little different, right? And right. We don't have the information on that yet, but maybe future episodes. Right. We could ask if in 1904 there even was a place for Chinese people to be buried. Like, mm-hmm. was there a special graveyard? And yeah. Maybe he just didn't. I mean, he was known. They identified him by name. So he was a known person. In the community, right? But just... Lots of mysteries. See, that's why we're unearthing mysteries every day. Every day. (laughs) And I just... Reading these old newspapers just gives you such a glimpse. I mean, even just reading one of the articles, but then you look at the entire page that's scanned and you can see the ads, you can see want ads, you can see, you know, economics, cartoons, cartoons, like... It's just so eye-opening to really see what was going on, you know, and was recorded in the newspaper at that time. So, Especially because that's how they were getting their main, like, information, Mm -hmm. right? Back then, aside from, you know, the old word of mouth. (laughs) Yeah. Meeting at, what was the guy, Kessler's clothing shop. Yes. (laughs) How important he was in the solving of a (laughs) true crime. So another one, this is from the, actually from the Bellingham Herald, but about Seattle. So October 22nd, 1912, Seattle man reads of his death and returns home. (laughs) So Charles Anderson, 40 years old, returned to his home here yesterday, alive and well, three weeks after a man believed to be Anderson and who was identified by Anderson's wife had been Uh buried. Anderson, who was ill health and who left home six weeks ago because he feared he was becoming a hindrance to his wife, read of his own death in the newspaper, but did not send word to his wife that she had made an error in identifying a body recovered from Elliott Bay until yesterday. Mrs. Anderson was positive in her identification of the drowned man, correctly describing his personal effects before she saw them. The mark over the grave bearing the name Charles Anderson will be replaced by one with the word unidentified. Oh my So gosh. one of the identified bodies in the potter's field was this person that she had thought was her, her husband. And later articles from the same era, she actually filed for divorce. So after she couldn't claim that he had died, I guess she had to go through the actual legal channels to 
to separate to from him, him her yes. useless husband oh my god <laughs> oh uh, that is crazy though. but yeah definitely uh that type of stuff happening people not getting along yeah and going to great lengths apparently to <laughs> to be separated yeah so. i think there were and so we, I yeah. did the final count, and there's actually 269 stories that we've tracked down of people buried wow. in the potter's field. Oh my gosh! A few bravo, are duplicates bravo. because yeah. you know there were multiple stories about a particular mm-hmm. person, including some of the kind of um, very dramatic true crime, murder, double murder, suicide, and, and what I like to call the Edward Gorey's unusual ways of dying. Yes, too. Like there's some interesting. Oh my god! Ones I have like one that, that is really gross. If we want to read it, it's actually from. <laughs> we want one more let's see yeah uh, yeah especially if it's really gross oh yeah the one of the bo- body disappearing in the night of the guys from the from bremerton oh yeah whose buddy had died and they realized he had been buried at the potter's field and they went over and dug him up in the middle of the night and brought him back to bremerton oh. and in the morning when the um cemetery worker got there and saw a hole he of course raised the alarm but then it turned out oh everything was fine wow <laughs> Let's see if it mentions that's the dedication. Same. That that's friendship. They're right there. Exactly. The type of friend who would go and dig up your body from the pauper's field in yeah. the middle of the night. So this is Monday, October 26, 1903. Oh my gosh, almost Halloween. Yeah. Body disappears during the night. Grave is found open. Oh Excitement at Pottersfield, but seeming mystery is soon solved. <laughs> Excitement reigned for a short time yesterday at the Duwamish Cemetery in Georgetown, where the county's dead are buried. The body of John Flanagan, interred Saturday morning by the Seattle Undertaking Company, in which was in its grave Saturday night after dark, was missing when the grave digger from Butterworth and Sons arrived at 8 o'clock in the morning to dig it up. The grave was open and the body gone. Word was sent at once to Butterworth and an inquiry was made at the Seattle Undertaking Company when all fears were set at rest by a statement that the body was back in the latter's morgue again. Flanagan, who was a ship's driller at Bremerton, died at Providence Hospital Friday afternoon. His remains were turned over to the Seattle Undertaking Company, and the next morning were buried in the potter's field at Georgetown, no friends having appeared to claim it. Saturday afternoon, John Doherty and William Wilson, employed at Puget Sound Navy Yard, learned of Flanagan's death. They came to Seattle and left word with Butterworth to take charge of the remains, agreeing to pay all expenses. They said Flanagan had no relatives nearer than Ireland, but they did not want him buried by the county. Butterworth had been sent, said that the body was already going to the potter's field. And after dark, accompanied by a man from the Seattle parlors, who is that? Went to the field mm. where the grave was located. It was then too late to take the remains up. And the work was set for yesterday morning. When they arrived, the grave was empty. You know what's amazing about this too is, have you ever tried to dig in hard ground? And like, Ugh, I mean, the ground is yeah. mushy down there probably, but... Even dig a little bit because I tried to redo this like garden thing in my backyard the other year and it's really, really hard. Yeah. I can't imagine like, I mean, there were two men that worked at a Navy yard. So I suppose that's, yeah. but like the parents that had to dig the grave for the baby too. Oh my it's, God. Like, it's like, it's, I don't think it's an easy thing to dig a grave. <laughs> you know, they make it sound people are doing it. Like, I've, I suppose if you feel compelled, like emotionally yeah, to do it, you know. Oh, here's the one. Okay. John Kelly. This is, oh, yeah. this is the gross. The gross one. Prepare yourselves. Trigger warning. A huge thank you to Patty and Rose for really helping us find, track down, and organize all these materials. I mean, it is just amazing what we've started to be able to find. And hopefully we can use this as a point to find out even more information about some of these people. And 
And some of them, I mean, there was definitely like drug and alcohol stories too. They were pretty sad, you know, mm-hmm. happening back then. A lot of drownings. Yeah. As, as you can imagine, we're surrounded by water out here. So that was fairly common. Getting the diseases that back then there wasn't too much help yeah. for. Um, a heart attack on a bar stool. I yeah. seem to remember there was one. Oh, yeah. yeah that was a regular. That, <laughs> okay, so here's what our final go? story from the newspaper that is pretty gross. So this is from the Seattle Daily Times, Saturday evening, November 21st, 1903. Body ground to pieces. Oh, no. Unidentified man killed by an inner urban train near O'Brien, <gasps> which I think is down in the Kent Valley, kind of down, oh, kind of weird, okay. like... Uh, ikea is right now oh my gosh unfortunate individual may have been john kelly a laborer so an unidentified man was run over and killed at 9 30 last night at o'brien station on the interurban line train 34 bound for seattle with motorman ari osborne at the front struck the man and ground the body into pieces his head was torn off both arms dismembered and the entire body frightfully mangled oh god the train was running at a high rate of speed and the crew had instructions not to stop at (gasps) o'brien the man was seen lying on the track with his head on the rail and although osborne made every effort to stop the train it could not be done in time to prevent the cars passing over his body Oh man! Well, he went quickly. He I mean, did. Assured, be assured of that. But yep. oh, that is grim. Yeah, there's an image that will stick with you. And, the inner uh, urban before they had yeah. safety, like those cow catcher things in the front, right? Oh. I think that was later. Oh no wonder! Yeah, and like no way to stop. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Did you catch that train? Oh. <laughs> right. So. On that note, we will be wrapping up for today, but we are so excited to have you join us for our theatrical episode next time, which we will be breaking out of some of these boundaries and and doing our uh, sort of radio play idea, bringing these characters to life, bringing the spirits to life, (laughs) you know, all that good stuff we like to do. Just a little taste of what we do annually for the Haunted History Tour um, via our podcast here. And so... We're super excited to be sharing these stories with you. And thanks for joining us for Invisible Histories. We'll be unearthing even more untold stories of the Pacific Northwest next time. And be sure to subscribe, subscribe keep listening yes. wherever you get your podcasts. And we're always looking for Invisible Histories of the Pacific Northwest. So if you have a good story idea, please reach out at invisiblehistories at gmail.com. Yes, thank you so much. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Invisible Histories, Pacific Northwest with Elka Hadala and Carrie Simpson, exploring the lost stories of the Pacific Northwest. Recorded at Works Progress Cooperative in Seattle, Washington in 2023, Seattle's only cooperatively run co-working space. And you can find out more at worksprogress.coop. Audio edited by me, Alka Hadala, and funding provided from a 2023 For Culture Heritage Project grant. And support from Friends of Georgetown History Productions. If you want to find out what they're all about, visit fogh.org.
And you can link to our Invisible Histories webpage through the fogey.org site to see pictures, maps, show notes, and all the juicy details. We know where the bodies are buried. Subscribe to our podcast where you get your podcasts and reach out to us at invisiblehistoriespnw at gmail.com.